You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. Oh, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCormick. On today's episode, we're joined by James Brown, who is the founder of Flow Meditation and one of the world's leading experts in the ancient practice of Vedic meditation, from which the Flow program was developed. James learned to meditate when life was chaotic. He had a new baby and a failing marriage. He had a bad job in a high-stress world of advertising. And he discovered the flow meditation approach to meditation, and it really worked for him. Since then, he's developed online courses, and he now consults and coaches for individuals and organizations all over the world. He recently spoke at the Upgraded Labs Biohacking Conference down in California with the Bulletproof team. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. For me, this was one of the most illuminating and insightful conversations I've ever had about meditation. And for those of you who've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I was taught transcendental meditation when I was 12 years old by my parents and have been a very consistent meditator since then. And I think a lot about how the practice of meditation applies in people's lives. And this episode really gets to the heart of how we can develop a meditation practice that serves our lives that doesn't require a saffron-colored robe or a cave or strict time regimens. He introduces a type of meditation, and we talk about the usefulness of meditation, in which you can just meditate no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in your house. We make some distinctions between the different types of meditation, like conscious awareness meditation, contemplative meditation, guided meditations, flow meditations, and we also get into how this applies to flow states. And one point that he makes in this podcast, he talks about when you meditate regularly, you literally make fewer mistakes in your life. Think about that. When you're when you have a meditation practice and things come up in your life and you have opportunities to make decisions and to perform at the highest level possible, when you can translate and process external stimuli in your life, you can make better decisions because you can see things as they really are because you're present with them. And that comes from a regular meditation practice. You know, I picked on it a little, a little bit and I said, hey, listen, you know, people are busy. Stress sometimes gives people an edge. And he made the point that when you can develop a practice that you're not being batted around by stress response from stress response or fight or flight response, when you can do your work, when you can show up day in and day out and be your absolute best self and be balanced in that approach, anything is possible. As you've probably already noticed, this episode is a little bit longer than most of the episodes that I've done And the reason is because he and I recorded this face-to-face in person. And so the sound quality is really good, but you also hear me saying, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, right, a lot. I was super into this conversation, and I think it's crystal clear once you listen to it. James has also given us a special offer for all the listeners, which is a 20% off the Flow online meditation course by using the code OPTIMAL at checkout. So go to flowmeditation.cc. All of this, of course, is going to be in the show notes. I really hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I did. This is the most compelling case for meditation that I think I've ever heard. And I've watched lots of videos and I've tied lots of conversations about the usefulness and applicability of meditation. Why? Why should I? Why should I meditate? 
this has all of those answers and I know that you're gonna love it. Before we jump into the episode, just a couple of notes of housekeeping. You know, I'm so focused on getting you the absolute best content, the best guests, the guests that I think are the most fascinating and the most useful to you in your life. I sometimes forget to do some of the marketing stuff and uh, it's, it's my fault. It's something that I need to get better at. But if this is the first time or the 20th time that you've listened to this podcast, or maybe you've been listening for years and you don't miss an episode like I know so many of you do, if you've never purchased Natural Stacks products, if you've never tried the serotonin brain food or the flagship nootropic stack Siltep, which is my all-time favorite nootropic smart drug ever, bar none, you can go to naturalstacks.com and use the code OPP at checkout for 20% off your first online purchase. And there was something from Natural Stacks for everyone, from eye defense to prebiotic to mycoimmune, which is a mushroom supplement to boost your immunity. There's just, it's, it's all there for you. And so use the code OPP at checkout to get 20% off your first online purchase. Hopefully some changes are coming to this podcast. We are working behind the scenes to grow this thing and we really need that help from you guys. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, it's something that I have recently done to all of the podcasts that I listen to, and there are dozens. If It really helps our numbers if you subscribe. So if you would, please go and subscribe. And also, please go give us an, a review on iTunes. It means a ton. It really is a massive game changer when there are a lot of positive reviews. So take five seconds, just drop us a line. I love this podcast, exclamation mark, five stars. I would be greatly appreciative of that and look forward to some additional elements to the Optimal Performance Podcast and to the offerings that we provide because we are working really hard behind the scenes to give you the most value that we possibly can day in, day out, week in, week out. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for letting me drone on a little bit longer in this pre-read. I'm really excited to bring to you guys James Brown. You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. James? Hi. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. Cool. One of the questions that I you're, like... You're one of the first persons who didn't say James Brown, because that's one of the funniest things that people usually have to discover about me. They're like, oh, you're not that guy. And yeah. I'm like, no, I'm not that James Brown. You're funky though. Yeah, I can be. <laughs> yeah. That's what my wife tells me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm really excited to dive into this, this conversation because what I know, my personal experience with meditation uh, informs my own sort of perception of its usefulness mm -hmm. and, and, and what it's done for me. And, and for you as a meditation coach, with what I think is such a beautiful approach to meditation, a really practical, usable version of meditation. I'm curious to start out with you just letting me know, like, how did you find your way to meditation? What's your Genesis story? <laughs> um, so it's, it's probably not the typical one. And I don't think there is a typical one, but there's certainly an archetypal typical one that people think about. Mm -hmm. um, for most of my adult life, I was a militant asshole atheist. Right? And so, and I discovered meditation in my mid 30s, early 30s probably, because I reread the book Siddhartha. 
Yeah. Right. It's kind of a cool book. It's I read it in college and I picked up again rereading it. Rereading books from college is a great thing, or books from high school, because uh, as you're older, you just appreciate so much more about them, or you see them through a different lens. But I reread that book, and it's essentially the story of Buddha as a teenager, right? And it's kind of a coming of age story. And I put it down, and the first thought I had was like, wow, that's a great book. And the next thought I had was, I bet that more interesting women would be more interested in me if I meditated. Right? Yeah. And so that's what put me on the path of, of exploring meditation to sort of like, you know, flesh out the crib a little bit. You know, I mean, I was unmarried then. And, you know, I thought if I had some Buddha books on the shelf and maybe a Buddha sculpture in the bathroom and if on dates I could say things like, you know, I'm going to the Zen Center on the weekend, you know, Saturday. I don't know if you're into that kind of thing. I could kind of like have a chill vibe. And, and, and you know, it's a noble goal, right, to meet interesting women. Yeah. Um, but it's probably not the one that the Dalai Lama started with. Probably right? not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, a lot of the other sort of Thich Nhat Hanh, those kinds of folks. But um, so I leapt into Buddhism because I thought Buddha invented meditation. I literally thought there was a guy named Buddha. And I didn't know if it was like a first name or a nickname or his last name. But I thought that he invented this thing called meditation. And what's interesting is that having never meditated, I knew exactly what meditation was. You know, you sit kind of like this and you do something with your hands and on what finger it is and if it's like Tuesday it's this and Wednesday it's this or whatever and you in a pristine way and maybe with a waterfall behind you or just a rock in front of you or something really simple and you tried to clear your mind and that's what I thought meditation was in fact when people learn that I'm a meditation teacher a lot of times they'll do this like, what are you doing? Like, you know, no one meditates like this. Yeah. Right. They're taking their cues from statues. Right. Which don't have muscle fatigue. Right. Right. No one sits there like this and meditates. If anything, they do this. But I guess my point is that having no experience, I had an idea what meditation was because of the influence of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Right. And all those sort of cultural iconography and ideas and archetypes of what the meditator is and what Zen meant. And so I, I leapt into Buddhism and tried flailed would be a better way to describe it for about a year and a half i don't know two years it's murky you know a long time ago exactly how long but i tried different zen centers of different degrees of austerity um i tried focusing on the breath counting breaths um putting the light attention only on the exhale i tried looking at candles and uh, contemplating love and compassion and all of these things and i thought of getting a really cool robe at one point because all the serious meditators had these really buffed out robes and you know i thought I don't know, you know, and I tried different zabatons and different cushions, but I finally gave up convinced that I couldn't meditate. I liked the ideas of Buddhism, but the practice never really stuck. I never felt like I was doing it right. Um, and I remember the moment I gave up, I was sitting in a Zen center and I was, my mind was racing with all these thoughts about my girlfriend who we were having a hard time at the time and my job and all, you know, you know, this dick at work who I was having some problems with, but I couldn't be seen to be having problems with him. And so, you know, just a lot of negative thoughts, a lot of worry and anxious. And I remember opening my eyes and looking around at this sea of super calm people all like this, you know, and I just thought, what are you doing? You're like a total fraud, hmm. right? And I, so I regathered myself and I'm like, and I'm sure at that point, maybe someone opened their eyes and they looked at me and they're like, look at that guy. He's so calm, <laughs> right? Because yes. we do that all the time, right? We compare our insides to other people's outsides. Right. And so, but for a number of reasons I gave up, 
convinced I couldn't meditate, and I went on with my life. And it wasn't until life got really, really chaotic um, that I discovered there was another approach to meditation, right? This Vedic approach or TM or, you know, uh, I call it flow meditation now. So there's, but basically it's a different way of meditating that, uh, and changed my life, right? I was like, oh, there's a different way. You don't have to sit rigidly. You don't have to focus. You don't have to concentrate. It's not about controlling your mind. It doesn't have to be quiet. You don't have to meditate at the same time every day. It seemed a lot more liberal and a lot more accessible. And I learned that practice and it worked. And I learned at a time when life was pretty difficult Right? I mean, I had a terrible job that I was in danger of losing. Uh, my wife didn't like me and I was sleeping downstairs and she was threatening to divorce me. We had a baby and I was kind of failing at being a dad and we adopted our kids. We did open adoption. And so someone literally gave us a baby mm. saying, we pick you to raise this child. And I was screwing it up. Um, and it's in that swirl of chaos that I discovered this approach and it worked. Um, life started to get better. And then oddly enough, I got an idea to become a meditation teacher which seemed ridiculous, but I went with it. But we can talk about that. I've talked for a long time, so I'm sure there's another question or follow-up. There's a couple more. Was there a moment at which you got it? Do you remember a moment in which it clicked for you? Um, yeah, the second session of the class. Um, when I took a class, when I teach a class, it's a series of sessions over some consecutive days, sometimes three days, usually four days. Um, in the second session of the class, I had a deeper experience than I had ever had in meditation. Um, and I, I just, I blurted out at the end of the session, I'm like, why does this work? <laughs> and again, I had a fairly naive understanding of what work meant. Right. Right. I, if I'd had a very choppy meditation, I wouldn't have said it works. And, and now having become a teacher and having been a meditator, I know that the choppy meditations are working too. Yeah. They're just working in a different way. But I had had this, I mean, we closed our eyes to meditate and then the teacher, you know, said Jay Gudadev, you know, at the end of the session, which is our sort of signal for, okay, we're done. And I was like, that was 20 minutes. It felt like two minutes. Mm. And I, yeah, I blew I'm like, why does this work? And he goes, what do you mean? And I go, well, I thought my mind was crazy. And he goes, yeah, well, the good news is it's not. And what was still, I think still is profoundly uh, amazing to me is that you can have much deeper experiences in meditation if you're not trying to have a deep experience because the part of you that tries is the part of you that keeps you in the shallows. Right. Right. It, it's like, and that we're going to, we're going to talk about flow. You know, that's the interesting thing about flow is you can't try to be in a flow state. Yeah. Right. <laughs> You right. know, you can't will, you can't will yourself into flow. Yeah. Athletes can't say, oh, I'm going to be in the zone now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, an artist can't say, okay, I'm going to, um, okay, what's my to do? I go, okay, 1045, I don't have a great insightful idea. And then, you know, you can't grind away on spontaneity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So can, can you describe, because I think that, that people are curious about if you've never had a fulfilling meditation session. If you, mm -hmm. don't, if you can't really verbalize or characterize that sensation that you get from a really redeeming uh -huh. meditation session, I'm gonna ask you to try to do that. Yeah. Can you help explain what people might feel like from a deep or purposeful or blissful meditation session? So, in the practice I teach, 
it's important to understand that there's this continuum of experience from deep blissful meditations up to choppy, you know, honestly irritating meditations. And, and it's really important to understand it just takes a while to be able to come to both an intellectual understanding and then an experiential understanding that everything at the, at the boundaries and within the boundaries of that continuum are valid and good meditations. Um, but what I think sustains a lot of people uh, is that very early on in learning this approach, you can have what we might call a good meditation, right? In fact, I prefer the term uh, gratifying, mm -hmm. right? Gratifying and ungratifying versus good and bad, right? Right? Meaning you can like a meditation experience. This just doesn't mean it's a good one. Right. In the same way that if you didn't like it, doesn't mean it's a bad one. But what happens for people is it what do we call a gratifying meditation is, yeah, I feel this incredible sort of just deep, deep relaxation. There might be periods where I'm not thinking at all. I'm not even conscious of the experience because you've experienced a state of your own awareness that's deeper than you normally witness. You might feel a suffusion of, of sort of just tingly sort of bliss cascading through your body. You can feel stress melting away and you can come out of that experience just going, whoa, where was I? Yeah. Right? And, and, and as you begin to have that experience more and more, you begin to be aware of not thinking, which sounds like a tautology, right? Because usually people think all the time. And so this idea that I could be aware without thinking is what do you mean by that? But awareness is the field from which thinking arises. Right? It's always present, even when thinking is present. And so you can have those experiences where you're aware of not thinking, where you're aware of, of a bigger experience of self. I, I call it the Jedi moment, right? I remember maybe two and a half weeks into meditating, um, I was sitting in meditation and this was on my own, this wasn't with a group or a teacher, and I had a moment where I felt absolutely connected to everything in a way that was ineffable, right? Undescribable, even saying it that way doesn't do it justice. But I just felt like that, yeah, like the force, for lack of a better term. Like I just felt that I was part of that. And it's really interesting because what the technique is really about is allowing you to have an experience of what you are beyond your thinking, right? In transcendental meditation, they use the term transcendental because it's an experience of transcending the mind and the self and all the boundaries of ego and your to-do list, but having an experience where you're not sleeping, but are aware of just existence, of just isness, of just awareness, consciousness without an object. And unless you've had that experience, it sounds so remote and odd, but it's the most natural thing in the world is just to settle into it. And so that's what I think people feel when they have what we call a good or gratifying meditation. Gratifying. The way that I <clears throat> try to describe it to people is when you wake up on a Sunday morning or a Saturday morning mm -hmm. and you don't have anything you immediately need to do, you wake up naturally without an alarm clock. Yeah and you don't open your eyes yet, your, mm -hmm. your eyes are still closed, mm -hmm. and you're not, you're awake, but you're not, you don't really hear things. Mm -hmm. There's sounds going on around you, but you don't really like pick up on it. Yeah, you're not identifying them. Right, yeah, you're, you're not saying crow, garbage yeah. truck, irritated, 
you're just sort of in this state that's not asleep anymore mm -hmm. and it's awake but it's not attaching meaning to things yeah and it may last three seconds or four seconds until things start to click on yeah and then you're like okay now i'm awake yeah maybe your eyes open or maybe there's a ringing um that's how i try to because i think most of us have experienced that before yeah. that sort of calmness from 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 just waking up with peace and 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 without the monkey mind or reptilian brain taking mm -hmm. over and for for people who don't know that feeling is accessible yeah. to them we've all had that it's, experience right i'm so glad you brought that up because there's actually a, a, a clinical term for that state it's called sleep onset it's the gap state between what we call consciousness and sleep, right? It's also sleep offset. What you're describing as sleep offset, it's an experience we have both falling into sleep and falling out of sleep, mm. right? But that's a state of consciousness that looks very different on brainwave scanners than sleep, than waking, than dreaming, right? right? In Sanskrit, there's a term for that state of consciousness. It's called turiya. T-U-R-I-Y-A, and it literally means the fourth state. Hmm. And what they felt, what they thought, and, and you know, what I teach is Vedic meditation, it arises out of this idea of Vedic culture. Yeah. And, and Veda is a Sanskrit word that means knowledge. And it refers to a body of knowledge that was cognized, that was, that was arrived at by a culture that reached its peak about 4,000 years ago, give or take. And it was a culture that was as obsessed with consciousness as ours is celebrity, ah. right? So if you can imagine such a consciousness, such a culture, right? right where TMZ followers, there'd be like a TMZ of consciousness, <laughs> like you'd acquire your, like, you know, Twitter followers on the basis of your enlightenment. This guy had this experience. Yeah, exactly. Wait yeah, exactly. And, um, and so they were very into this notion of awakenness and, and, and expansion of consciousness. And Turiya, what they felt was, that was an all-encompassing state, a state of restful alertness, mm. of pure awareness. And what they felt is that all of the other states of consciousness we normally experience, waking, dreaming, sleeping, right? All existed within that, that that state of, of, of innocent, silent, open awareness was, uh, was the default state that we slipped in and out of, and we became aware of it in those gaps. Right. Right. And that's why when people learn to meditate, they're like, it felt like I was falling asleep. And I'm like, yeah, it feels like that. Yeah. It's not. And what you can do is learn to cultivate that experience for longer and longer periods of time without falling asleep. Right. So yeah, so it's interesting you brought that up because that's a great parallel because yeah, we've all felt that way. And right. almost everyone likes that experience. Yeah. Right. I've met one person who didn't like because I described that, I'm like, it's like when you're falling asleep, and she went, oh, I don't like that. It feels like I'm losing control, oh. right? And that, because you are, At yeah. least she was talking to you. At exactly. Least, at least she was yeah. curious about meditation. Mm -hmm. Well, can we make some distinctions between the different styles and practices and disciplines of meditation? Yeah. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure you're going to get um, some know-it-alls writing in, correcting what I'm about to say. Of course. Um, because always. someone is always wrong on the internet. Of course. Right? 
And so, one of my favorite cartoons ever, right? Have you seen that one of the guy who, his wife is in the bedroom going, honey, come to bed, and he's like on his keyboard. She's like, come on. He goes, no, someone's wrong on the internet. <laughs> yeah, it's my job to correct yeah, Exactly, yeah, yeah, someone's wrong. Um, so I'm sure I'm wrong in what I'm about to say at some level to someone. Um, and I wanna say upfront, there are um, lots of different things that are underneath this umbrella we call meditation. And I'm down with absolutely all of them except two. Hmm. Right? There's premeditated murder, right? <laughs> which is an interesting use of the word meditation. That is, you're right. I'm not down with that, right? Um, and then there's a type of meditation, apparently, that this guy told me about where um, he was in a kendo class and the, his instructor would line them up in a circle, all facing inward, and have them close their eyes and he would stalk around the outside of the circle, whapping his kendo sword into the palm of his hand, going, silence your mind, whap. Huh. So I'm not down with that one either. Yeah. But everything else that's considered meditation, I think is fantastic. So, but let's break it down into three basic groups. There is what I started with, which is normally described as focused attention, right? Where you focus and you have this thing called the monkey mind. And so you try to train the monkey, right? Um, and it's a practice in which you sit in a certain way, in which you pay attention in a certain way, uh, either to the breath or if you're taking a mindfulness class, it's to the flavors and tastes and sounds, but you're trying to focus your attention, right, on something. And, and then you employ concentration as, as, a, as a tool to help maintain focus. In fact, I should pause for a minute because what I find is that we use the terms focus and concentrate interchangeably, but they're really different things, hmm. right? Focus is a deliberate narrowing of attention. Like right now, I'm narrowing my attention to look at your left eye right? And if your right eye started fluttering, right? Thank you for fluttering, right? Then it would require concentration to keep my attention narrow, huh. right? Or if there was a bird that started cawing outside, like right. my attention would be pulled in that direction. So I'd have to concentrate. Right? I've never heard of that distinction. And so, but they're really different things, yeah. right? And so in, in these practices, you focus, you concentrate, and you try to get better at developing those skills. And I think that most of those practices are, are taken up by people because people have too many thoughts, right? So, and in fact, almost everyone I've ever taught to meditate says they have too many thoughts. And no one ever says, I have too many nice thoughts. Like, dude, I'm here to meditate because I'm just too filled with compassion, <laughs> too filled with great creative ideas, right? Most yeah. people have too many anxious, worried, nervous thoughts. And we'll come back around to why that is later. And so this idea is like, well, if I have too many crazy thoughts, if my mind's this jumping monkey, I should train it. And so their practice is about training that mind. Uh, and they're valid, they're beautiful, uh, they require different degrees of effort and austerity, but that's a whole type of meditation. Right? Then there are practices which are about what I call contemplative practice, where I want to reflect on some quality. Uh, compassion, or I can make a gratitude list, or like loving kindness meditations, meta meditation, uh, where you direct your attention in a certain way, and you're trying to cultivate a certain experience or a certain quality or concept or feeling. Um, and those are beautiful practices, right? But again, they're kind of related to thinking, right? They're, 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 they're prescriptive in a way, mm -hmm. right? You, people think I have too many negative thoughts, I have too much anger, I have too much worry, I have too many feelings of, of, of lack and scarcity, so, or maybe I'm having a let, time letting go of anger. And so someone will say, well, you should, you know, Deepak Chopra has this beautiful meditation on forgiveness, you should meditate on it, meaning listen to it, think about it, reflect on it, 
right? And, and so you're trying to shift your consciousness in a way. And, and beautiful, in fact, these days, because of proliferation, proliferation of apps, we've kind of blended what might be called focused meditation and guided meditation, mm -hmm. right? Guided meditation didn't really exist 15 years ago, hmm. 20 years ago. Right. Um, but this idea that, that meditation is where you listen to someone and follow instructions and do a certain thing or contemplate a certain thing has become enormously popular. It's where a lot of people start. And so in a way, they're blending those two types of meditation together. In fact, if you get into the apps, there's almost this ridiculous tactical specificity of meditations. There's like big meeting meditation and like breakup meditation and waiting for my Uber meditation, and, <laughs> right? And so they're this, you know, they're these little pills you take. Right? To sort of, you know, calm this, cure that, cultivate this. Uh, again, so focus concentration, contemplative practice. In the one hand, you're trying to train the mind. In the other, you're trying to curate consciousness. To, to, and again, these are really broad groups, right? Then there's this other approach to meditation, uh, Vedic meditation, TM, flow meditation, uh, in which you're doing something very different. You're, you're essentially learning how to get out of the way. You're letting the mind flow. You're allowing yourself to meditate. You're not trying to meditate, right? Um, you're opening to the experience and including everything about the experience into meditation. And it's really easy, actually, which is, to me, blew me away because I thought meditation was hard. And I thought that because I'd done it a lot and because they told me, like, yeah, you know, you'll get better at this. It is hard, but you'll get better. And then I met a guy who basically said, no, meditation can be hard, but it actually can be quite easy. And I took a class and I was like, oh, he's right. It can be easy. Um, and so that's this other approach, which you might call, I don't know, allowing open monitoring, but it's the most open of monitoring because it's just open without monitoring, right? It's just open. So yeah. Are, is, is, the, is that style usually can come along with mantra? You know, you can do it with the breath. Um, in fact, in an intro workshop, um, I'll teach people how to use the breath in the same way that I would teach them on a course to use a mantra. I used to, in some intro workshops, give like a little starter mantra. Uh, but what I found is that, that the mantra was too easily abused as a tool. Hmm. Right? How do you mean? Um, it seems more tangible than the breath, so it's something I can grip on tighter to. That's for sure. Um, I can set up a rhythm or a cadence with it that's independent of my breathing, and so I can get a little sing-songy with it. And so yes. the reports I got from people, if I would do a, a workshop at a company or just at an intro session or something, and I would teach them with a starter mantra, <laughs> the very concept of a starter mantra is hilarious, like, like Fisher-Price, like my first mantra. <laughs> um, it is so the breath using the breath in a different way allows people to have that experience. Um, I don't think it's as easy as using a mantra. I don't think it's as consistent. I don't think that it's the basis of a solid practice. But you can have that experience. And essentially, what I do is teach people to use the breath like a diving board, not an anchor. Right? Do me elaborate on that. Yeah. Okay. So usually, when people meditate with the breath, they think of it as an anchor and they think of focus on the breath and concentration to maintain that focus as a way of anchoring consciousness, mm. right? And the reason that's, that's a powerful and relevant metaphor is because it, it sort of 
is doing the same in consciousness as an anchor does for a boat in a stream, which is keep it from drifting too far. Right. Right. You feel the tug of the anchor chain, meaning you're off the breath and you come back to it and, and you get better at that practice by staying on it more by, you know, and, and so right. it, it's this idea. And so the reason I, I use the metaphor of a diving board is because a, almost everyone's jumped off a diving board before or seen someone do it. Right. And so you know that the diving board allows for a different experience than jumping off the side of the pool, a more dynamic experience, which is why there are plenty of Olympic events based on jumping off diving boards, but none based on jumping off the side of the pool. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but the other most important thing about that metaphor is that the diving board is not the experience. It enables the experience, but it's not the experience. In fact, to have the experience, you have to let the board go. Yeah. Right. Oh, wow. And so, you don't just bounce on it the whole time. Yeah. You get very bad scores from the judges or if you're the community pool, people are like, dude, man, come on, jump. You've been there for like, a There's day. a line, like, come on, like, <laughs> you know. And so I just think that introducing that idea allows people to approach meditation in a very different way, which is instead of trying to hold on to the breath and acknowledge thoughts and let them go, I start with the breath, but I'm willing to let the breath go and allow thoughts to flow. Hmm. And then when I realize I'm off the board, when I, when I realize that I'm not thinking about the breath or the mantra, then I don't see that as something I need to get better at. I see that as success, like good job, like you've allowed the dive. Now get back on the board, but don't try to hold onto it tight or don't try to do a better job. Right. And so it introduces people to this really, I think, radical notion that you can allow yourself to meditate, that meditation doesn't have to be about your thinking. It doesn't have to be about controlling the mind, that, that you can open to this stream of consciousness. In fact, the other way I talk about it is imagine a stream, right? We have this concept of the stream of consciousness, right? And so I said to people like, well, imagine that as a literal stream, right? There's a stream flowing across a landscape. The stream flowing across the landscape is going exactly where it should be going. And nobody, except one person, my friend Barry, judges a stream. Barry. Barry. Right? I, I took Barry on a hike years ago. And he, he thought the forest was messy. <laughs> no, like, he didn't. He did. And I was like, again, I never thought of it. Like, it leaves everywhere and the sticks just things, right? <laughs> and so he's a very um, anal retentive control freak perfectionist. Right? We all know. We've all yeah. met Barry. I've been that guy. Not to Barry's degree. He's like a master. Um, and, and so we were sitting once. Uh, and we took a break for a snack. And we're on this beautiful little uh, out rock outcropping, looking down at the stream. We're a little elevated above the stream. And he said, <laughs> he said, you know, I don't know if it's me, but I don't think it should go left around the rocks there. Don't you think right would be better? <laughs> and I'm like, dude, it's totally you. Like, you're judging nature. Like, what are you making your top 10 list of trees you've seen on the hike, right? You know? And, and, and so what I think, what I introduce people to is this idea that, like, you can approach meditation in allowing that flow. And it doesn't mean you won't hear Barry's voice in your ear during the session. You'll hear that voice going, that's too many thoughts. You shouldn't be thinking that thought, right? You should be meditating. You should be thinking, right, all. I said, that's just Barry. I said, you cannot argue with Barry. And I mean that both literally and metaphorically, like I've tried to argue with Barry, right? But what people, what I ask people to understand is that that voice has no authority in this approach to meditation. 
right? You're not here to judge the stream. You're here to allow that stream, mm. allow that flow. Right. And, and what's really interesting is that when you completely remove the idea that you're there to control or curate your thinking, the great irony is that your thinking settles, your awareness settles to a much deeper place than if you were trying to do it. Right? I mean, I've taught in an intro workshop using the breath, people are like, that was amazing. That was, I really went somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, and it, and it wasn't because you should have, it's because you allowed yourself. You allowed, yeah. yeah. And, and, and again, we were talking about flow earlier. That's the thing about flow, right? Flow is something that you allow. Right. You can't try right. to be in flow. But flow's always available. And yeah. so, and, and you know, we can talk about flow states and, 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 and ex- expanding this notion of what a flow state is or could be um, and how it can be experienced. But, but basically, it's, it's taking that flow approach to meditation. And it requires some instruction, right? Because I think what we have to do is learn how to get out of the way. Like I basically tell people, I can teach you the art of effortlessly allowing the mind to settle. And it sounds really like, that sounds cool. I'll put that on an Instagram post. You know, that's not too many words. Yeah, right. But then what does it mean to be effortless? Yeah. What do you mean allowing? What do you mean the mind settling? Mm-hmm. Like, how does that work? Why does that work? How does that, like, and so it's just in unpacking that phrase itself that you have the basis of a course. Yeah. So, yeah. When it, when it comes to the sort of glorified spiritual nature of things like, <laughs> yoga, <coughs> meditation, uh-huh. you know, it's become a, it's become a badge of honor, you know, it's become, uh, <laughs> uh, this, this funny ego trip, like, well, there's know, no, there's no ego trip, like the spiritual ego trip, Ram right. Das says, yeah, it's, and it's, it, it, and <laughs> two seconds on Instagram and you're blasted with it. Oh yeah. For people who are trying to, I, there's not really a question. I just want to shed light on it because, you know, I, meditation doesn't make you cool. Well, it can, but that, I mean, yeah. that's what got you into it. On a it. surface level, yeah, it's, exactly. It yeah. was your road in. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I struggle with it a lot because there are no prizes. There's uh-huh. no prizes for med- best meditator. Yeah. No, it's not going to be an Olympic event. No. Thank God. Uh, how, how, does, how do you think about that? So it's, it's really interesting because, like I said, I mean, I come to this. I mean, I'm a meditation teacher. I'm like a full-time meditation teacher. I used to be a creative director in advertising. That makes you very cool, by the way. Yeah. And so, yeah, and inspiring to people. And, and, but it, it's still staggering to me that this is my life, right? But I come to it from not a spiritual background at all. Um, a very hardcore physics background. I was into theoretical physics from the time I was in high school. I still you know, read books on, on string theory and M theory and the order of time. And, you know, but what I find having come into this space, both as a teacher and a practitioner, is there's all these different layers and, and degrees of expression of spirituality. Right, and 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 what's interesting is that a I think it's all understandable and all sometimes and all valid and it's just people in a way acting in a way that they might want to be like you know the person who yeah. puts roomy quotes all over their wall it's like it's sort of like the kid 
who's imagining what kissing someone is like. Mm -hmm. Like it's a lot of intellectualization and, and, and beautiful words and thoughts and ideas, but what people really need is the experience of those things. Right. Right? Like you can certainly imagine kissing people and you can try to watch other people kissing, which was my approach in middle school. I got my ass kicked one day. <laughs> this like high school dude and his girlfriend were like, dude, what are you looking at? He pounded me. Right? But <laughs> if you want to learn how to kiss people, you have to start kissing people. Right. And so, you know, you can have affectation and aspiration, and that can be expressed in all these different ways. But until you start having the experiences of those truths, then it just stays at that level. So I'm not critical of it. I might laugh at it a little bit. And I might see the irony in the fact that there's a lot of people. In fact, I meet a lot of people in what we call the yoga world, in the asana world. Because as you know, everything is yoga. Meditation is yoga. Um, devotion is yoga. Loving someone is yoga. And we'll can unpack the word yoga in a little bit. But what I find unfortunate is that because in America we've approached yoga as a workout, which is why we have sweaty bungee jumpy yoga and like wine and chocolate yoga, right. and you know all these power, all these things. And and then there's five minutes of shavasana, which half the people blow off to check their phones. Right. That some of the most stressed people you meet run yoga studios but they have to hide it behind this veneer of like, namaste, motherfucker, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so, and I, I meet a lot of people pretending. And because taking that, I tried for about a week. I got like a caftan and I got nice. some beads. And I'm nice. like, well, I'm a meditation teacher now. Yeah. And I just felt so ridiculous <laughs> that I just gave it up. And what I realized is that I'm not gonna be, if there's someone looking for that person, I am not their teacher. Like it was really, when I graduated teacher training, um, I wanted to teach everyone to meditate. And then of course I realized like, dude, you're not everyone's teacher. Uh, there are many people who I am not spiritual enough for. But as a consequence of just being me and not pretending, I find that there's a lot of people that I am their teacher. Yeah. And so I, I'm not, I understand, I think where it all comes from. I appreciate where it's leading people. I feel Bad, I think sometimes and sad for the people who are clinging so hard to something that isn't really clicking, but they, there's a lot of social pressure to do it. Right. Um, I guess that's what I think about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 If that answers the, the non-question. It, it, it does. It, it's an, uh, that's an elegant answer to my non-question. Yeah. I, you know, I watch, I watch the sort of cultural uh -huh. uh, impressions of, of this sort of, self-improvement you know i own float centers and yeah. meditated for for a long time and and it you know meditation eight minutes a day so you can hashtag crush it and, <laughs> and hashtag grind it's like yeah I, like we get it we get it, 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 it but if you there it reminds me of a comic uh, that i saw just recently in which there's a guy in a suit and sunglasses and he's on his cell phone and he's talking into his cell phone and the you know his bubble says yeah i uh, i i meditate 10 minutes a day so so it gives me the power that i can you know dominate the world <laughs> yeah and there's somebody sitting behind him you know cross-legged in a robe that says we're meditating an hour will let you know that you don't have to yeah exactly <laughs> yeah like, well i mean so self-improvement is a really interesting because i'm technically in the self-improvement space yeah and i read a little essay recently that 
I think it's a really important thing to understand that, that, if, you, that if you look at the evolution of a flower, right, from seed to sprout to stem to bud to bloom, the bloom is not improved over the bud, uh, <laughs> right? right? It's just the next stage, right? right? It's not like finally yeah. you became yeah. your best self. Right, and so I think that it's, it's, everyone is exactly where they are, and this sounds really lame in a way, but, but it's, let go of this idea of self-improvement. Right, you're not improving yourself. You're just following whatever the path of your own evolution is, and sometimes that's going backwards, and sometimes it's going forward, and sometimes it's going forward too fast, and sometimes you backlash, right? But it's all that path. In fact, I think that this notion of success and failure is also misguided. Because if you look at your life as a series of successes and failures, it's, then you're keeping score, yeah. right? And I think that, that the real, back to this notion of flow, the real definition of success is by expanding to understand that that word is a shortening of succession. It's like what follows from this? You know, I have a friend who was in a 19-year marriage and it ended and he felt like it was a failure. And I'm like, that's not the way to judge a 19-year relationship. It right. took you somewhere. Yeah. You were this person, you experienced this together, it ended, and now you're here. Like, what's next? Right. Right? Like, back to the stream. Like, there's not one part of the stream that is, like, the winner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I think that that, and, and so, yeah, there's lots of motivations for people to learn to meditate. meditate. And, and I welcome all of them because I think, to, your, to the monk's point, in the cartoon you referenced, that whatever reason you come into it for, that if you consistently stick with it, you will transcend that reason and discover that there is so much more. That, that is key wisdom. Yeah, you know, it's like there's, I mean, the things that meditation has improved in my life, I could have never imagined, you know? And, and, and I, I mean, I knew why I was doing it, and I knew what I wanted out of it, and I got some of that in the short term. I wanted a little clarity. Uh, like I said, my wife and I were um, on the verge of divorce, and, and we both learned to meditate together. I don't know why she agreed. I went into this intro talk, like I'm doing tonight in Seattle, and I learned that there was a different approach to meditation. I met a teacher I kind of clicked with, and I wanted to do the course, and I suggested to my wife we do the course together. And like I said, I have no idea why she agreed, but she did, and we took this course together, and in the clarity that meditation allowed at first, one, it allows us to de-stress a little bit, right? Meditation is a really fantastic stress reliever. And in the clarity that came from that, we could see that we're meant to be together. There's still a lot of work, a lot of couples therapy, a lot of work rebuilding trust, all of that. But at least we could see. And so that was why I got into it. I wanted just something to stand on that felt firmer than what I was standing on. But where it went and how it's expanded, um, you know, I was talking to my first teacher a few years ago, and we were talking about drugs and, and expanded states of consciousness and how drugs can be used, and he made this really funny observation. He says, you know, James, if you could take your current consciousness and put it back in your body from, I think, eight years ago was when we were having this conversation, he says, it would feel like a drug experience. Oh, for sure. And I was like, you're totally right. Right. Because the way I walk around in this world now, right. compared to eight years ago, is like a bliss bunny, 
right? I walk around, I notice flowers, I like smile, I'm not trapped in my mind, I'm not thinking a lot of negative thoughts, I'm not like worried about, like, it's, it's just, it, yeah, it's like being high. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I could have never like signed up for that. You know, that's, that's what I want. <clears throat> if you knew that that was the outcome, would you have pursued it? No, I probably would have been super skeptical. Yeah. I would have been like, I would have called bullshit on that. No way. Yeah, come on, dude. I'm, I'm not going to be tiptoeing yeah. through the tulips. Yeah, in it's fact, I, I, I kind of go out of my way not to overpromise. Um, yeah. Just because, A, yeah, I think I still retain a little of my inherent skepticism. And, and I project that onto other people that, that I might meet. Like, I don't, yeah, I just, like, like, this is easy. It'll make meditation easy. It'll make it something enjoyable. It'll make it accessible. Because if it's easy, enjoyable, and accessible, you have a greater chance of doing it more consistently. Yeah. And, like, practices, the only real benefits come from consistency. Let's talk about the method a little bit. Uh-huh. Can, we, can, you, can you be specific with us about, about the actual approach? Yeah, so... Um, so in the, the classes, if I'm not doing an intro class, if I'm doing an actual course, whether that's my online course or one of the in-person Vedic courses I teach, um, it starts with receiving a mantra. Right? And it's a different kind of mantra, a different class of mantra. It's not a mantra that, that sort of you use for its meaning value. Right. It's not like Om Shanti. It's not like compassion or peace, or it's not like Nam Myon Kyo, Renge Kyo. It's, not a, it's a, a very short mantra. And it's a sound that has what we call a resonance quality, which means it has the ability to capture your mind's attention, but because it doesn't really have meaning, you don't think about it. Right? If you think about compassion, if compassion is your mantra, then you'll sit and you'll contemplate compassion and then you'll start thinking about all the people not being so compassionate and then you start thinking about what you want to do with those people and what action you should take. And, and it's very easy to get on the path of taking thinking into action to accomplish something because that's what we've been trained to do since we were three. Right. Right? And what I'm interested in allowing people to have is an experience to go the other way, to have an experience that is beyond thinking. Right, to have experience of the source of thought, of that field of turiya, awareness. And so if you have a mantra, you can think about it. It's harder for us with all our training to have that experience. Um, so you have this mantra, and you go through a series of steps, very short meditation followed by some instruction, a little longer meditation followed by some instruction. And, and everyone has their first sort of longer experience using the mantra. And then we talk about, well, what, how do you really do this? What do you, you know, everyone starts out holding on to things too tightly, right? I talked about why I don't use the mantra in my intro classes because people grip it too tightly. Yeah. I think that one of the things about people is that we always grab things too tightly when you're just beginning, right? Like if you play golf or tennis, totally. you hold onto the racket too tightly. Yeah. You hold onto this too tightly. I mean, the first time I ever held a girl's hand yeah. in middle school, right? I like worked up my courage and we're in a movie and I like, like, yes. And then 15 seconds later, she went, ow. And I'm like, oh, shit. Like, I had no idea how tight you hold a girl's hand. Right. And so I didn't try again for months. I was paralyzed with fear. I'm like, oh, my God, what did I do? You know, she can tell all her friends, don't hold his hand. He's a crusher. Right? So we all start out holding on to things too tightly. And so, you know, if your teacher's telling you, let go of the mantra, be willing to let it flow, you know, all that stuff, it, it, it takes some instruction to really embrace that and some experience. And so the way the course is structured is you get your mantra, you have your first experiences, you learn a little bit more about the technique, and then you go do some homework, right? I want people to meditate on their own. 
Uh, Wait, you want people to meditate on their own? On their own in, in life the next day. And you then they come back. Yeah. By themselves by meditating themselves. alone? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, people are like, <laughs> oh, you know, I do five minutes of meditation or I do three minutes of meditation. Or I, do, I go, dude, don't sell yourself short. I want you to go do a 20-minute meditation on your own. Yeah. 15-minute meditation on your own. Yeah. And they're like, and, you know, they come back and they're like, hey, that was easy. Or more often people say that was harder than meditating with you in the class. Sure. And I love when people say that was harder, not because I want people to have hard experiences, because if the premise of the practice is being as effortless as possible, uh-huh. then what does hard mean for you? Right. You know, oh, it was noisy. It was, And so that homework gives us fodder to then go into the next phase of the class, which is where we really refine our technique. You know, what does it mean? Like, what does effortlessly mean? What are the ways I can be effortless? Um, how might I be effortful? You know, it's about letting go of control and all those things. So that's the topic of the next lesson. Then send people home, another meditation. They've learned a little bit more. They come back. And then we talk about what I would call the physiology of meditation. Right? Like what kind of experiences can you have in this practice of letting go? You know, if I'm not there to control the mind, like, and we introduce this notion of, of, of allowing the entire experience to unfold and the physiology, what are the consequences of the deep rest we achieve in meditation? What does stress release feel like? Right? I mean, because we're all familiar with how we can retain stress. So what does releasing stress mean? What does it mean for the experience of meditation? And people have to have a really good understanding of that concept and, and what's possible so that they can move forward knowing they're still doing it right even if they're having experiences that don't fit their idea of what meditation is. By the way, the reason I do air quotes now is because my son Joshua, who's seven, has discovered air quotes. Uh-oh. And he's like, Dad, I love you. <laughs> Dad, you're smart. <laughs> so he's like all into the air quotes. So I probably do more air quotes now than I have in. My five-year-old will use the air quotes to not say anything. He's like, hey, Dad, can we go? I don't <laughs> ride bikes, get ice cream. I don't. Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so, and then the, the, the final class, if it's a three session class or we break it, again, sometimes I teach over three sessions, sometimes over five, sometimes over two, over four. It depends upon the structure of the course I'm teaching and the schedule of the person I'm teaching. Sometimes I do a lot of private courses and we, but, but then we want to start talking about the benefits of meditation. How do I know it's working? Like what yeah. kind of thing? Like why is it worth your time, frankly? Right. And then some tips and tricks for making it a habit. What are some strategies and tactics that work for people? And frankly, what are the long-term consequences of being a daily meditator? Right? I want to just tease that a little bit. Like we talked about earlier, I don't want to overpromise. Right. But I do want to point people in the direction of where this is going, right. you know? And so that kind of constitutes the course. Cool. That's kind of how it works. But as far as the technique itself, right? So you have a mantra and you sit comfortably. Can I pause you right there? Yeah. Because I think that, I think it's important because I know, I know, I know the approach is, is, is accessible to, is accessible. Mm-hmm. It's one of the more accessible approaches to meditation. Yeah. Cause you've done it because I've done it. Yeah. And, and I understand that this is not meant for monks in temples. Yeah. This is not meant for sweat lodges. This is for people who live lives. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, it's good. A great. So it's technically, technically, this isn't a technical term, but it's referred to as the householder's technique. And that's an odd term. Like, it's not a term we have in our world. But it's, I think, what the term means can be understood by using a term, comparing it to a term that we do use a lot, which is landlord. Mm-hmm. Right? Most people, or a lot of people, have a landlord. 
I bet most people have not considered what a what an old term that is. Like right. they're the lord of the land. Lord. Like you pay them tribute on a monthly basis. They're the landed gentry. You're a serf. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's your relationship. So householder is an equally old term, but it means one whose path through life, whose dharma, is to hold house, meaning to not live in a monastery or an ashram, to not separate themselves from society in silence or in an enclave, to have a lots of functional contact with a lot of people who don't meditate, to have relationships and sex and the complications of that and kids and the complications of that and to have multi-branching career paths and life paths and, and you know, all of the stress and noise and interruptions and all of the things that, that just we think of as life. And I, I talk sometimes about this notion that Almost all the things we think about meditation come from practices that were developed by and best practiced by people who have very different lives, mm -hmm. right? Monks. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go down a certain path, like a Buddhist path or Vipassana, which is a form of Buddhism, you'll be invited to go on a multi-day silence retreat, which is a fairly um, amazing and challenging experience. Uh, but what you're really doing when you do that is you're going and living like a monk for seven to 10 days. Yeah. Right? You're right. going to go have a, a, an experience that I call spiritual tourism, not because I'm denigrating tourism. I love being a tourist. I love going to other places and wearing the hats and eating the food and listening to the music and seeing the dances. Right, But it's an experience you're having which is valued often largely because of how different it is from your daily life. Right. Right. In, in fact, uh, a friend of mine, Light Watkins, uh, and I were joking, he's another meditation teacher, uh, that we have all these people going off on silence retreats, we should create noise retreats for monks. Yeah. <laughs> we, should, we, should, we should create retreats where monks come into the city, we give yeah. them a shitty retail job and a sketchy roommate and a difficult commute <laughs> and be like, all right, let's see how your Zen holds up after seven days of this. Right. Right? They're right. Not, it's not how they're wired. Right. What's the Ram Dass quote? Uh, a weekend with your family will, she will tell you exactly how, exactly. how light you are. are. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the Dalai Lama, an amazing person, an enlightened being. I don't think he could raise my two boys to keep my wife happy. <laughs> right. Right. He'd be like, just brush your teeth. Yeah. Like, why aren't you brushing your teeth? Yeah. You know, he wouldn't know how to fix the chain on a kid's bike. He wouldn't, like, he just yeah. couldn't do it. Like, because right. that's not his life. Yeah. And so it's not to say that there isn't enormous beauty and truth and beautiful writing. Pema Chodron, Thich Nhat Hanh, some of my favorite people on the planet. But I think that if more people understood that you didn't have to sit like that or think like that or be like that or isolate yourself like that to meditate successfully, yeah. then more people could meditate. I think that is a really key point. And I, and I think it what, it's what distinguishes your approach and the way that you present meditation is that this is for everybody. Yeah. It's not that hard. It's not reserved for... Uh, for the elite, for the monks. So yeah, you don't have to meditate at the same time every day. Like right. there's a beautiful book I've read called Mindfulness and it's written by two guys. And in the very first chapter, it says what almost every app says, what every mindfulness book says, what, is try to meditate at the same time every morning. And I'm like, well, there goes 80% of the parents I know. Right, right. <laughs> like, and, and what's interesting about that is that they'll say, but if you can't, that's okay. But the implication in that kind of a statement, right. like if you can't sit, in, a, in that position, it's okay, right? The implication in those statements is then you're not doing it as well as you could. Right. You're not getting the most out of it. And right. we're a nation of optimizers. We want to do a good job at everything. And so if your entry into a practice sets you up for not doing it right, not a lot of people stick with that. Right. 
right? right. Or they have they, a degraded they experience. En- enter into it thinking, oh, this is not. Yeah, I'm not going to. Yeah. I'm already not doing it right because I didn't do it 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night. Yeah. Uh, never mind then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, what I teach people is that A, it's flexible. It, the most important thing is you can, you can move it around. Um, you can do it anywhere. You can comfortably close your eyes. Like, it doesn't have to be quiet. Right. I mean, my house is just cacophony in the morning. We have two boys who argue and fight and yell and sing and a dog that runs around barking and I meditate in that. And I meditate in that since I started meditating. (laughs) Right? It doesn't have to be quiet at all. You can be in a conference room, you can be outside of a conference room, you can be before an interview, you can be on the bus, on the train, on the plane. All of those are places you can meditate and not have a degraded experience of it. Like that's a slam dunk successful meditation. That's important to know. It's really important to know. Tell us like about the technique. So the technique. So you sit comfortably, and if you're uncomfortable, you can move, right? When I teach people, I have chairs, I have backjacks, I have people sit against the wall. I don't want people sitting in the open floor meditating, even if they're really good at that. I tell people you can slouch your way to enlightenment, right? In fact, if people open their eyes during the class, they might see me like this. I'm like, Jesus Christ, that guy looks like a rag doll. <laughs> like, I'm learning from him, right? And the reason for that is because, as I said, we want to get to that place in consciousness or allow ourselves to settle to that place in consciousness at which we're not paying attention to posture, at which we're not trying to control things or curate things or contemplate this. We're having an experience of beingness. And in that way, I think this is a very foundational practice because at your core, you are a being. You're a human being. Right? We live life as if we're human doings. Right? We have this to-do list as long as our arms. We think our job in life is to get everything done. Like that's ever possible. They would just give you more. Yeah. Right? At the end of your life, there's like, your life is one long to-do list and the last box just says die. Die. And someone checks that for you. <laughs> right? And then on your mushroom suit or your urn or your you know, tombstone, whatever path you take, they put the plaque like, or sew the patch that says, she got everything done. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what a great life she must have had. She got everything done, right? So you're not trying to pay attention to posture. Uh, so you sit comfortably. If you're uncomfortable, you move. You close your eyes, and you begin to think the mantra very effortlessly, not trying to focus on it, concentrate on it, willing to let it go, and opening to the experience that unfolds. And you do that for about 20 minutes. And then when it's done, you let go. Uh, you sit there with a minute or two with your eyes closed as sort of a buffer zone between the meditating you and the you that's about to get up and do whatever you need to do. Yeah. And then you just go about your day. Um, it doesn't look like much. It doesn't sound like much. But there is enormous value in just finally giving yourself a chance to stop pushing your mind around all the time. Yeah. I mean, we push our minds around all the time, especially as you were saying in this sort of optimization culture, yeah. right? And, and there is nothing wrong with optimization. It's just the realization that the more you push and grind, the returns get fewer and fewer and fewer and then become regressive, right? Right. That, right. that if you want the optimum experience of life, if you want the fullest experience of what it is to be a human being, then you have to open to that entirety of experience. Right. And, and you can train yourself to do that in meditation um, so that when you come out of meditation, you have a better experience of life. Right. Like I'm, and this is an important point. I don't teach people in a technique in which I'm asking them to get better at meditation. Like, frankly, it's too easy a practice to consider yourself a master of. Like, I'm so great at forgetting my mantra. I'm absolutely fantastic at relaxing deeply, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, 
the important thing is to understand that the reason you're doing it, the reason you're committing your time is so you can be better at life. So that you can live more of your life in what I call the state of everyday flow. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because, and, and that sounds like an overpromise. And I talk a lot about that lately these days. I was down at the biohacking conference in LA and I started talking more about this notion of flow states is yeah. because I think that, that the unfortunate thing is that we've taken the term flow and Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler have written this great book called Catching Fire. And I love that book. Um, but in fact, I'm gonna do a challenge to um, Jamie because he is convinced he can't meditate. And I'm like, dude, I can teach you to meditate. I like meditation isn't part of their that. program because he's convinced he can't meditate. Um, and so they talk about Navy SEALs, they talk about great artists, they talk about, and I think there's a danger in our culture where we are such experience seekers of, yeah. again, thinking of flow only as that kind of an experience that can rise to the level of what we call a peak experience. You know, I was at another conference teaching and I overheard two guys talking and they were basically trying to outflow each other. One guy's like, oh, it was total flow, man. We were in Costa Rica in the jungle. It was this ecstatic dance circle. And this other guy, you know, the kind of conversation where you're just waiting for the person to finish so you can add in. I've been that person. I know what it's like. And, 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 and the other guy says, oh, I know what you mean. We were in British Columbia. We were hella skiing and it was virgin powder. It was just flowy, flow, 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 flow. And I'm like, oh my God, these tracks are trying to one-up each other with flow, yeah. right? Yeah. And, I, and I saw where that goes. And what I wanted to do is just tap the brakes a little bit to just allow people to understand that, that flow is any experience in which you are fully present and taking the most of whatever that experience is. Um, flow is, I define it as a state in which we're uh, enjoying ourselves fully, performing at our best, taking in the, everything that experience has to offer, and are fully present without trying. And I emphasize that without trying because that aggressive flow seeking is a way of trying. Yeah. Right? And, and the truth is, is that creativity is a flow state. Right? Yeah. Insight is a flow state. No one fills in the blank of the phrase, I think of my best ideas when, with the answer when I'm trying to think of them. Right. Right? A great conversation is a flow experience. Agreed. Uh, and we've all had conversations where we find ourselves just having talked to this person for 40 minutes mm -hmm. and we're like, that was amazing. And then we find ourselves in conversations where we're grinding away, trying to have a great conversation. Right. In fact, if you've ever known anyone who's taken a mindfulness course and they come off of the mindful listening module, it's fairly exhausting to have a conversation with them because they're listening their face off to you. They're trying to have the greatest conversation. There's a lot of really <laughs> awkward pauses because they've been taught to really wait the other person's done. <laughs> Consider your response. Don't have to say. So there, you say something, and they're like, "So, what I hear you? It's you know, it, yeah. we've all had great conversations, but they come when you're not trying to have a great conversation. Great right. sex. Great sex is a flow experience. Trying to have great sex is not a flow experience. Right. Right. And so, what I want people to understand is that it's possible to have more of your life be a flow experience." what you have to do is expand your frame of how you apply that term right. and understand what gets in the way of it. Right. And, and meditation is, is a way to train the mind, to train the body to understand what that state is like and to be more present when you have opportunities to enter into flow states. Yeah. Um, let's expand it even more than that. So I think, I wouldn't say train, I would say refine. 
Because I think what's really amazing about flow is that I believe it's our default state. And the reason I think that is because toddlers, who are the super learners on this planet, are pretty much in a flow state 24-7. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, before they get into preschool, before they get starting to talk, to focus and concentrate and take some action and get some achievement or acclaim and then build their identity based on their ability to do things right and right. try hard and do a good job and then what's your next job, right? Before they get onto that, that wheel, they're in a total flow state. And if you look at the brains of toddlers, their brains exhibit this beautiful, harmonious, holistic brainwave state. Yeah which looks very much like the brainwave state of jazz musicians when they're improvising. Right, right. right? And I mean, jazz musicians, when they're improvising, are in flow. Right. They're not trying to control the improvisation. They're not trying to put their own agenda to it. They're just fully present, open to every sound and mood and the crowd, and they're co-creating in real time. Yes. That's flow. Yes. And that's actually what your brain looks like as well when you're doing this approach to meditation, when you're allowing the mind to flow. And so it's really interesting because I wouldn't put those three groups together, right? But if, you can, if that's what you're born into before we start training ourselves out of it, it's what you're experiencing when you're in a peak experience, like a flow state, or when you're just sitting there doing as little as possible, meditating in this very easy and open way, I think what it suggests is it's possible to come back to that state of consciousness, mm -hmm. to, to, to allow yourself to, to develop that to be once again your default state of consciousness. So that, like a toddler, Brushing your teeth can be flow. Grating cheese can be flow. Looking at the warp and weft of your genes can be flow. It's really interesting that we'll have drug experiences which open us to the fullness of the present moment and be stunned by it. Right. Like, oh my God, I can look at that. It's almost like a little canyon there and a crevice. And, you know, but then we lose the ability to know if there's a police coming or our parents coming or whatever. Yeah. Right? Little kids are like that all the time, right? Yeah. They're not on drugs. They're just in this open and available state of consciousness where they're completely expanded their awareness to every moment of the present. Right. And in order to come back to that state of consciousness in our later years, in order to cultivate mm -hmm. that ability, it takes repetition. I think it takes It takes two things. I think it takes repetition, begin retraining your brain. Your brain's very plastic, right? So we can retrain our brain. Um, it comes from disconnecting from that doer mindset. Yeah. Right, because I said you're a human being, you're not a human doing, but we've been conditioned to be human doings for decades. Mm -hmm. So we have to learn to unwind that a little bit. And then it, it, in reducing stress, because stress yeah. is really the thing that keeps us in crazy brain land. Yeah. Right? When, people, when people come in and tell me that they want to learn to meditate because they're having a hard time focusing at work, I'm like, it's not because you don't know how. You've been taught how to focus since you were three. The reason you can't focus is because your cortisol level is through the roof. Right. Your adrenals are fatigued. Um, your brain is the brain of a stressed person, which is, you know, activated, energized, limbic, you know, like a lizard brain, shutting down to the prefrontal cortex. Like that, the reason that, that people are the way they are, they have the experience of life they have, the reason that we're so nasty to each other in traffic, the reason we're so offendable, the reason that we have negativity bias, that we tend towards a negative interpretation of events or comments or things is because we're stressed. When we're stressed, which is important to understand is a physiological condition. Mm -hmm. The world is not stressful. 
stresses our relationship and reaction to the world, mm. that when we're stressed, and that can be either when we're in full on freak out mode, or just this generalized level of what Pema Chodron calls ubiquitous anxiety. Mm. You know, it's that kind of just constant, ever-present, low-grade hum of restlessness and agitation that things like FOMO come out of. Yeah. Right? We're in the middle of doing something and there's a part of us going, oh, should we be doing something else? Yeah. What, what else should I be doing? Or you're in the middle of something and you're like, what's next? What's, what's next? You know? Yeah. That's stress. And when you're in stress response, you're basically in threat assessment mode. Right. And if you're in threat assessment mode, the consequence of that is a very active and engaged mind that's always looking and analyzing and overanalyzing. And so you can tell yourself, hey, the universe has got your back. You can have roomy quotes. You can paper your entire wall with roomy quotes. But if you are stressed, it's all just window dressing. Or it's just software, right? I think of this is the least spiritual way to think about meditation. I think of meditation as a hardware upgrade. Right? I think we have a lot of software in this world. We have a lot of you know, ideas of how we should be. Let go of anger, don't sweat the small stuff, universe got your back, all this stuff. Yeah. You know? If you're running that software, attempting to run that software on hardware that's jacked up with stress chemistry and these old samskaras and little fear loops and reactivity, it's really hard to run that software. Yeah. If you can find a way that you can meditate consistently that grounds you in something deeper than your to-do list in that field of pure consciousness of being, if it allows you to rest and recharge your batteries, if it allows you to remove the stress from your system, begin to diminish that inflammation that stress really is, then guess what? You can be a nicer person. Yeah. You can be more open, more caring, more loving, more charitable, more positive. Right? Yeah. And, and so I think that that's, that's the thing. And, and, and you can be more in flow, right? More of your life can be spent not thinking about life, worrying about life, but just living life. Right. And to me, that's that notion of everyday flow. You know, I walk around this world now not worried about stuff too much. You know, I, I don't have a lot of um, second guessing going on in my head. I don't run a lot of scripts in my head where I'm preparing to like, you know, preparing to have an argument with my wife later that night after we sure. put the kids to bed. I'm yeah. not rehearsing those scenarios. I used to be that way all the time. For people listening who say... I totally forgot people are listening. This is like a great conversation. I totally forgot that this is a podcast. Beautiful. That's perfect. <laughs> We're doing our jobs then. All right. They may hear that and say, well, I can't afford to walk around in bliss. I, 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 I'm, <laughs> I'm too busy. I, I have too much to... I, I have people depending on me. I yeah. have bills to pay. Totally. I have things I have to do. I cannot, James, mm -hmm. um, be at peace all the time like that. What would you say to folks like that? Um, I think that that comment comes out of another um, unfortunate consequence of conflating meditation with this zened out life, right? Because a lot of people think meditation is a chill pill. You know, and I mean, a lot of, I teach because I think I was, am one, like a type A person. Mm -hmm. um, I, I meet and, and engage with a lot of people who are like that. And they'll say, you know, look, look, man, stress gives me my edge. Right. Like, I don't want to lose my edge. Right. And, and what we wanted people to understand is that stress actually dulls your edge. Right, stress creates a lot of irrelevant responses to life. It, it, it makes you less open to new challenging ideas. It, right, it, because when you're in fight or flight mode, you can't risk it. Right? And so you settle for ideas that seem like they're facsimiles of a good idea. Um, that, that 
what being stressed out does is actually dull you. What meditation does is sharpen you. Like I don't do less since I started meditating twice a day. I do more, more effectively and more enjoyably than I started doing it. And, and I think... I think people need to hear that. Well, the goal is, the, like I said, the goal isn't to do nothing. The goal is to be present in whatever you're doing. Because if you're present in whatever you're doing, you do it better. You cannot be a good listener, lover, chef, CEO, entrepreneur, hula hooper, whatever, if you're not present, right? You can fake it, you can get by, you can multitask, you can you know, get a lot done, but did you do a good job? Yeah. You know, did you enjoy it? Were you present for it? No. So presence sharpens your edge. In fact, you know, we were talking earlier about this notion of a mistake. I tell people, if you start meditating, you make way fewer mistakes. People are like, how's that possible? Right. I'm like, well, let's unpack the word mistake. You have a take. You have an assessment of a situation, whether you're interviewing someone like in job or dating, which is kind of an interview process, right? Um, or you're on the freeway. There's, there's always information around you. The present moment is full 360 HD all the time, always free, right? If you're stressed out, worried, have tunnel vision, then you miss something about that experience and then you take action on the basis of that inaccurate, incomplete assessment and that's a mistake. You didn't have the frame of awareness to, to recognize all the variables that go into the decision you're about to make yeah. because you're stressed out, yeah. because you're edgy, and because you're not seeing the bigger picture. Yeah. And again, all we're really talking about is, is being in a flow state more often because when you're in a flow state, you're more perceptive, more aware. I mean, think about the kind of experiences we normally describe as a flow state, right? Michael Jordan once scored like 39 points and a half. And he was interviewed afterwards and he said he didn't make a single choice. He wasn't trying. Right. Right. Now, clearly he was trying on a Herculean level of effort to the people watching. Right. Right. And, and it wasn't like he was in this like Zend at bliss garden with no one opposing him yeah. or anything. Right. Right. Um, flow is not frictionless. Right. Actually, flow requires friction. In a river, there's friction at the bottom and there's friction on the sides where you're growing. Right. But, Interestingly, he said he didn't try, he didn't think, he never made a single choice. He didn't ever have to think, should I go left or right? It was just flow. Right. Like that's peak performance. Yeah. Right. Responding to external stimuli in a way that you're just dancing in it. Yeah. Yeah. You're just flowing with it. And so what I tell people who, who worry that it's going to take their edge away, I'm like, realize what you're doing is just retraining yourself to be open and available and fully present for everything you're doing because when you can be when you can combine being and doing that's flow that's the golden ticket right and 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 that can just be more of your life than not and meditation for me is the easiest hack of the of all yeah right because what i don't need to use an app i don't need headphones i don't need binaural beats i don't need i just need to yeah. close my eyes Think my mantra as gently as possible and allow something other than my ego and my performance optimization mindset to run the show. Right. Right. And the reward of doing that is higher performance. Yeah. It's like, you know, <laughs> we talked about martial arts. So I had a martial arts teacher once who not, and I'm not a badass by any means, but he had a really interesting point once. I was always in my head like I was in everything in life. I was ahead of myself. I was trying to punch before I was ready to punch. I was trying to kick before I was ready to kick. And he was like, James, James, feet. 
ground your feet. Oh yeah, I have feet. Yeah, <laughs> footwork. Ground your feet, because yeah. once you can ground your feet, once you can firm up that foundation, then every punch, kick, spin is more effective. Right. That principle does not just apply to fighting people. Right. It applies to emailing people. Yeah. It applies to, you know, making breakfast for your family, commuting on the road, being in a meeting, leading a meeting, starting a business. It applies to everything. Right. Right. What are you in consciousness being? You're not a human doing. I come back to this again and again and again. But it's really, meditation is a way of grounding yourself in being so that you can do more effectively. Yeah. Which is what this householder life is all about, right? Yeah. We don't do a crappy job. Right. right. We want to be fully present and we want to enjoy it. And we want to, you know, move along a path of purpose. And mean, we want all of that stuff. But yeah. it's hard to do if you're stressed out. It's hard to do if you're locked into doing mode. It's hard to do if you just think a certain way and are a certain way in the world. So that's what I would tell those people is it's not going to dull you. It actually sharpens you. But again, there's not enough cultural. There are more. There are more people who meditate every day who are killing it, like Ray Dalio, like, yeah. you know, Howard Stern, like, you know, in fact, celebrity endorsements are a big part of what's made TM work. Right. And it's been that way since they were doing it with the Beatles and all those right. folks. You right. know, now it's Russell Brand yeah. and uh, Russell Simmons and David Lynch. And yeah. All those people. Seinfeld. Yeah. Those, those are all TM guys, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's just a really important lesson to learn. It's just like, yeah, it's not going to zen you out. It's not going to. In fact, I gave a talk at a Zen study group. And, and it's interesting because the, the net undercurrent of a lot of their questions were what's wrong with the breath? Because I was describing, because I guess implicitly I was saying they took it this way, you're meditating wrong, or a few of them did. They were kind of um, offended that I was presenting that there was another way to meditate. Um, and one guy said, what's wrong with the breath? And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with the breath. Like there's, you can use the breath, you can use a mantra. It's just this notion of, you know, I asked them, I said, contemplate the word Zen for a moment. Close your eyes and contemplate the word Zen. And they did. And after a couple of minutes, I asked them to open their eyes and we went around the room and I said, what were you picturing? You can imagine what they were picturing. Like a single bamboo stalk, you know, um, a rock in a field of gravel, um, a water droplet poised, which, you know, like all these, I'm like, so none of you picked a meeting. None of you picked a commute. Yeah. None of you picked making breakfast for your family. None of you picked life. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's just, it's, it's unfortunate that, that these concepts and these practices have been pigeonholed almost unconsciously as things that take me out of my life. Right. right. You know, it, it, so I think Spirit Rock is a beautiful Zen center in Marin County. I wish it was in the city. Yeah, right. <laughs> because it tells people that the way you meditate successfully and effectively is to get away. So, not that there's anything wrong with getting away for every once in a while, but like, you know, I don't get away as often as I am stuck. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> you know? And we've talked about, we've talked about this before about the importance of, of not escaping for meditation and to not, you know, again, like <clears throat> spiritual tourism, you know, like you, you need to practice not you need to practice. Now I'm catching. I'm like what, you must what? practice. <laughs> like silence your mind. Watch, You're like that kendo instructor. Yeah, I'm like watching the t the words that I use now because I'm trying to be graceful with it. But <laughs> um, it has to stay practical in your life for it to work and be effective and to stick. And you're yeah. right to have to have a meditation school facility 
in Big Sur or, you know, the jungles of Costa Rica, it's fine. It's great. It's cool. Yeah. It's lovely. And also you do still have to wake up and make breakfast for your kids. Yeah. And you still have to remain calm at the checkout counter when yeah. there's somebody. When someone says, do you mind if I pay with a check? Yes. <laughs> you have to like, yeah. okay, and here's my opportunity. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it needs, in, in order for, for people to really understand the usefulness of the practice, mm -hmm. It has to be immediately effective. It has to be immediately accessible in their life. Yeah. The other day, I was meditating, and my older son, Logan, came in and said, um, Dad, and I was meditating. I've learned to keep your eyes closed unless there's broken bones or blood. And so I have my eyes closed. And he says, Dad, I go, yes, Logan, I'm meditating. And he goes, Dad, Joshua peed on me or spit. <laughs> I'm like, again, I don't think Thich Han ever had to deal with this one. And I said, hmm, both bad, both pretty different though. Which one do you think it is? And he goes, I think it was spit, but it could have been pee. And then I take a peek at my watch and I'm like, well, Logan, I have about 10 more minutes in the session. Do you want to wait till I'm done or do you want to go talk to mommy? I'm going to go talk to mommy. And so he goes, talks to mommy and there's yelling and it didn't ruin the session for me, right? Because if, if that kind of interruption or experience could ruin meditation for me, then it's not for me. Right. 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 You know? It's an opportunity. Yeah, I don't want to have to get up at 4.30 to meditate. I want to be able to meditate when my kids are up. Right. And, and so, yeah, it, you're right about being accessible. And, but yeah, I think you had another question. What did you want to ask? Well, I, I've heard you talk about layers of consciousness. And we've, you know, we've, we've sort of woven in and out of you know, practical and, and you know, more esoteric. And, and, and I'm curious about how you think of layers of consciousness. So in a couple of ways. So just as the outset, we as humans tend to like to chunk up the world, right? And we like to see hard boundaries between different states, different experiences, different things, you know. But the truth is, is that it's all spectra, right? It's all continuous. There is not a line in the rainbow that's a boundary between red and green, right? Yeah. It's all, there's not a line between love and like. Right. Right. But we use those words and, oh, did you say love? Yeah. Oh, okay. So we're there now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then if you ever say love and then you go back to, I, I really like you. Oh, what we are, is everything wrong? Yeah. Like, so, so, so states of consciousness are the same thing. You know, um, we tend to chunk up consciousness. In fact, I think I read a, a, an article how scientists had discovered the consciousness switch which is only possible if you define consciousness as this very thin sliver of cognitive function that allows you to plan dinner parties and science experiments, right? We, we tend to think of consciousness, unconsciousness, and subconsciousness, you know, waking, sleeping, dreaming. Right. But, I mean, have you ever been aware of dreaming? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So what is that? That's the waking state spy hopping on the dream state. Right. It means that you can hold both of those states together, right? Um, sleep, we call sleep something that is unconscious and yet snooze bar sleep? I mean, I'm sorry, if you can be asleep, it was Joshua's air quotes again, if yeah. you can be asleep and hear a click and you're like, Poof, yeah, you're conscious. Right. right. And so when we approach this notion of layers of consciousness, it's that with that understanding that it's all continuous, right? There's a continuum. But within that continuum, I think we have experiences that I would call the very surface of life. 
the very surface of the mind, which is choppy and filled with like to-do lists and speculation and agitation and rehashing the past, and that's the monkey mind. They're distracted. Then I think that we have experiences where we fall into some experience of present moment awareness. And it's usually these immersive experiences that people say things like, you know, I, I don't meditate, but cycling is my meditation or gardening is my meditation. And, ex and, and I think those are flow experiences, right? They're this immersive experience where you're not thinking, not worried, you're just, and, and what's amazing about that is I know why people say that that's meditation. Because when I was convinced I couldn't meditate, I would say cycling is my meditation. Mm -hmm. But then I learned to meditate and I know it's not true now. Right. Now meditation is my meditation, yeah. right? But what, the reason people say that, the reason they conflate meditation with that experience is that that's an experience that they can have, which more often than not allows them to escape that surface brain chatter layer. And because it's such a rare experience, they think of it as meditation. Right. right? The beauty of meditation, of allowing yourself to have even deeper experiences, is that that becomes more of your experience even when you're not doing those things. Right. That meaning you can be in line at the grocery store and have the same fullness of presence as when you're cycling right. or in a yoga class. Mm -hmm. right? Deeper than that are those layers of consciousness at which thinking gets less linear, right? Um, a lot of times people will say when they're learning to meditate, when it feels like I'm dreaming. I go, yeah, but if you had a neural net on, you would see you're not in the dream state. What you're doing is being to experience deeper layers of your own awareness, of your own thinking, at which thinking is simply less linear, right? I mean, creativity is not a thought process, right? Creativity is an insight process. Creativity is a flow process ideas and insights emerge from this field of what? Possibility, you know, creation, creativity, but they come to us fully formed. You know, you don't have to like, you know, the last great insight you had, you didn't have to work it out. Right. right? It just came to you. Right. And, but then because of copyright and patent laws, we get to take credit for it and profit from it. But it's really not your idea. Right. The part of you that thinks about things and worries about things, right? Right. It came through you. Right. Right. So there's that layer of experience. And then deeper than that is that field of pure awareness um, where there is no witness to the experience or maybe just the, the tiniest flicker of a witness of awareness. Beneath that is this field of possibility, of potentiality. You know, I was teaching a coder to meditate and I was talking about that field of unboundedness of potential. And he said, you mean that place where everything's a one or a zero? I said, no, deeper than that where things are neither one nor zero, but have the ability to be either, you know? And it's that, that well field of, 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 of potentiality that in the Western mindset is considered the void. And it's terrifying, like dissolution of self. Right. Um, in the Vedic understanding of the void, it's not a field of nothingness, it's a field of all possibility. It's like zero is not nothing. Zero is the portal through which negative and positive numbers flow. Zero is actually the fullest number. Right. In that, you know, Vedic approach to mathematics or Persian approach to mathematics as well. Um, it's not the void. It's the field of potentiality. In fact, in, in, in physics, they now no longer use the term empty space. They use the term dark matter, dark matter. because they find that it's that connective web of whether it's, you know, loop, quantum loop gravity theory or it's, it's, there's potential there. It's a something. Or it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, it's in a, fact, a, that something is bigger than all the mass we can measure. Right. Yeah. It, it's that field of potential. And so yeah. that's an experience in consciousness, of consciousness, 
of consciousness beyond the self. And, and what's really interesting is you get deeper and deeper and deeper what'll often happen. And it even happens when you know, you're having an immersive experience. I mean, you've heard the expression, time flies when you're having fun. It's because when you're having fun, you're having far fewer thoughts than when you're not having fun. Right. Right. You're just thinking about or experiencing or aware of and reacting to the experience you're having. You're not in your head speculating about your meter or the next meeting or whatever. You're just right. So you have Present. many fewer. Th- yeah. So you have many fewer thoughts. Um, that I'll have ex- people have experiences in classes that will talk to me. They're like, oh, time just you know that 20 minute meditation felt like two minutes, and I'm like. It's because you're beginning to have experiences in consciousness that are literally beyond time. Mm-hmm. You know, I just read this fascinating book called The Order of Time by Carlo Rovelli about how, look, dude, time doesn't exist. There's no such thing as the present or the future or the past as we understand it. Time doesn't flow in the universe. Mm-hmm. You know, I was talking to a friend about it and he said, well, that's ridiculous. Of course time flows. And I said, what's the rate at which it flows? And he went, huh. <laughs> and he's, his guess was a second per second. And I go, that's ridiculous. <laughs> right? You wouldn't say the, the, your car is 40 miles per mile. Right, right. <laughs> right? Yeah. There's no measure you can have of the flow of time. Right. Right? On a, and so you, you can have experience. Time is an abstraction, an incredibly useful one. Right? right. I mean, you, we agreed to meet here at a certain time. We're going to do this for a certain time. Yeah. It's going to, are you going to have lunch at a certain time. The restaurant's only open at a certain time. Right? It's a really useful abstraction. Yeah. But it is an abstraction. And there are layers of consciousness at which that abstraction is not present, therefore time is not present. Yes. And, 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 and again, back to toddlers. Toddlers have no idea what time is. You wouldn't say toddlers aren't existing in the world. You wouldn't say they're not aware or present, but they have no experience of time. Yeah. And they're so happy about it. Yeah, they're not worried. Yeah, they're not, they're not worried about missing their meeting or call or whatever. Well, yeah. they're perfectly fine to be lost in a in staring at yeah. the dust that they can see through a yeah. sunbeam, yeah. right? And just be there yeah. for as long as they possibly can. Yes. And, and, and I'll just make a slight, it's amazing to me, they are not lost. Yeah. They are found. Yeah. Right? It's, when people, it's really, really telling the phrases we use to describe these experiences. When people will say, and you may have said, I used to say, I still might sometimes colloquially say, I said, oh, I just totally lost myself in that activity. Uh-huh. Right? What is really happening? Right. You're engaging in some activity, some immersive experience, thoroughly enjoyable, where you lose, God, air quotes are coming yeah. just left and right here, where you lose your worries, your to-do list, your agenda, your meeting right. notes, your, right? Which is the reason we say, that's what we define ourselves as. That is our constant experience of life. So we define ourselves as that. Right. What you're actually gaining is yourself, is your larger self. I really like But that's that. not how we talk about it because that's not how we define ourselves as. Right, we are what we do. We are what we do, what we've done and how well we did it and how many likes we got and what it like. Yeah. What you actually are is an experience of being, of, of the larger self, of expanded consciousness, at which that's not your dominant concern. That's yeah. not even a concern. But it's not how we describe it. So yeah, so the kid didn't lose himself in the sunbeam. Yeah. He was himself in the sunbeam. Right. Right. Found himself yeah. a part of the sunbeam. Yeah. Well, where can people 
learn more? Where can they read? Where can they integrate? Can they book you? Can they yeah, um, fly you do out? all those things? <laughs> uh, yeah, you can fly me around. Um, I did one course with a guy who's like, look, the only way I'm going to learn with you is if you come with me in my private jet. I'm like, all right. So we did five classes over three days uh-huh. uh, in his private jet. No, three classes over five days, sorry, in his private jet in between meetings. How did he do? He did well. That was his, that's where he was comfortable. Needed to do it there. You know? And so that's all that would work. Yeah. But no, I mean, I, so I give, I give talks, I do workshops, I teach at conferences, I teach in companies. Um, at this point, I'm split between two websites, which is a bad place to be and I'm consolidating it. But for live teaching and instruction, um, the website is vedicpathmeditation.com. And you'll have that on your show notes and yep. things. So it's vedicpathmeditation.com. Um, I would, over the years, have gone to enough conferences and taught and have given workshops for two, 300 people in tech firms. And then almost none of those people who had positive you know, experiences could then come and find me to take a live class. And so I was asked... And, uh, and, and pressured into creating an online course, hmm. which is flowmeditation.cc, in which it takes this Vedic approach to meditation. It's not the same experience as learning live with me, um, but it combines meditation. It's this approach to meditation using a mantra, not the breath, but it also combines breath work, mindfulness, visualization exercises, things that I'm also starting to include in my live classes. And it's, um, it's an online course that's doing great. And it's uh, really... I was reticent for a while. I was hesitant to, to do an online, do an online course. course because yeah. I so believe in the primacy of live teaching. Right. I still think it's the best way to learn. Yeah. And it certainly costs a lot more to learn live with me than, than remotely. Um, but what I have realized is that I can have a connection with people even if they can see my face, but I can't see theirs. Yeah. And, and I was skeptical of that, but I, I did it and the results have been great. People really like it. And then I've had people take that class and then come and learn live with me to sort of deepen the experience. Yeah. So that's all possible. So that's how people can reach me. I'm writing a book. Um, another thing the online course is allowing me to do is, is have uh, an income stream so that I now have time to sort of write. Yeah. And so it, the title is either going to be No Babies in the Monastery <laughs> or Stumbling to Enlightenment. Nice. So, um, Both are strong. Yeah, so we'll see. Cool. Uh, I want to take it home with a fill-in-the-blank uh-huh. question. Yep. And so if you would, everyone would benefit from knowing. That you don't have to fight your mind to meditate. James Brown, thank you very much for joining me, us, here today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thanks, man. It was really fun. This podcast thing is really fun. It's cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right.